This is a News Laundry podcast and you're listening to NL Interviews. I have with me Simon Winchester, uh, a British journalist and author who now lives in Massachusetts in America. He's a prolific author of about 25 books, has worked for The Guardian and has briefly was briefly assigned to Calcutta and Delhi. And Delhi. His book, uh, The Professor and the Madman, published in 1998, tells the story of the creation of the Oxford English Dictionary. Right. Fascinating idea and fascinating research you must have done to get out all that material. It was fascinating and it's particularly extraordinary now because it's being made into a movie So uh, with Mel Gibson and Sean Penn, so I couldn't be happier. I've just come back from the set, actually. But anyway, yes, the research um, was both at the lunatic asylum where he was... Uh, incarcerated for many years the, the the protagonist of the book and of course uh, which and of course which you're more interested in is the research in the archives of Oxford University Press itself to see some of these hundreds of thousands of paper slips which included on them sentences in which were the words the meaning of which was identified by the sentence which is what the basis of the OED is descriptions of what words have meant during the years, the centuries that they were used. is very different from the, the French and the Italian dictionaries, which are pre-scripted dictionaries. They tell you how a word must be used, whereas the OED describes how it has been used. It tells its biography, if you like, which leads you to how it is used today. And that's a crucial difference in dictionary making. So the difference is that it's not a commandment. In fact, it's a suggestion. The difference between Islam and Hinduism. The context is perfect, yes. I mean, the word that I often use as an example is the word sophisticated. Sophisticated now means that you and I, I like to think, are sophisticated people. But 80 years ago, to sophisticate something... Salt. Indeed. You could sophisticate salt by adding sand to it to uh, increase its weight and thereby cheat the the buyer of money. So words are very um, fugitive things. They change their meaning over the centuries, and the OED describes that. So now we come to post-truth, which... How would you describe it if you were to write it for the Oxford Dictionary? That's very interesting. To write a, de- a definition can take some le- lexicographers many weeks to come up with the perfect description. But post-truth, um, which is post-truth, was incorporated into the OED a couple of years ago and became declared to be the word of the year, I think, for 2016. And it's really the new belief that uh, systems often operate on no longer on absolute truth, on objective truths, that it is we live in a world where truth is in itself a fugitive thing. And uh, we make decisions and um, take uh, actions dependent not necessarily, and this is particularly an aspect of the media, um, that is based not on absolute truth or objective truth, but on a sort of fluid uh, truth, which is not often, which is often not true at all. And we're seeing a lot of this, this post-truth, in the whole eruption of uh, fake news, for instance, as it's known, which I imagine might be the 2017 word or phrase of the year, um, in the aftermath of the American election. And indeed, um, as recently as um, the immediate aftermath of Mr. Trump's inauguration, 
there was much uh, discussion about how many people attended. And the television news presented us with a figure of 250,000 people attended the inauguration. Trump's press secretary went uh, on television to declare this to be totally untrue and that at least a million people turned up. So the television, in his view, was presenting a post-truth. The absolute accuracy, whether it was 250,000 and a million, is in a sense non-relevant because the perception now out in the country is that um, we don't know the absolute truth and uh, the Trump team go with the post-truth of a quarter of a million. The others, the opponents, go with the post-truth of one million. So life is getting very complicated and post-truth is uh, an insidious phenomenon which uh, I hope enjoys or suffers a very brief life. So we are going now from um, a cynical public who, or a public, uh, a public either that's too cynical to believe any any politician, particularly, or their spokespersons, and uh, compared to people who seek out facts which just simply support their beliefs, whether they're true or not. Yes, I mean that's another. I mean that's another problem too. In a way, post-truth is is. Um, a stepchild of the whole conspiracy theorists. I mean, if you go back to uh, 2001, for instance, 9-11, the belief which still lingers in many quarters that the destruction of the World Trade Center in New York was the result of a, an Israeli plot. And a number of people still still cling to that. But you're absolutely right. And it's uh, the Internet, particularly the, the social media and so on and so forth, spread these things like wildfire. And, and post-truth becomes... Uh, insofar as, let us say, the New York Times, I essentially believe what I read in the New York Times every morning, the paper edition, once it's been fully and carefully edited, all, uh, all the facts checked, and then it's put to bed and printed. That, that arrives on my breakfast table at seven every morning, I essentially believe. But the New York Times website, although they do their best, which is changed many, many times during the day, presents in a way, although they do take immense care, um, this fluid and fugitive news. And that's why The Guardian, for instance, which does its best to, uh, it mounts a huge and very successful website, um, is hemorrhaging money. Because to, 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 to create something that is absolutely true, you need time or money. Preferably both. But with the internet, you don't have time. So you've got to spend a lot of money trying to make things appear, be as truthful as they can be. And The Guardian doesn't have that kind of money. The New York Times mercifully does. So most of what is on the, most of what is on the New York Times website, even though it's produced quickly, I tend to believe. And I tend to believe both The Guardian and The New York Times in their paper, their printed edition. Fact checkers are a part of my life, particularly when you write magazine articles or with me with, with books. But um, the internet does not require fact checking, and that's one of the problems. And so, post truth rules on the internet these days. But why does it not require fact checking? I run a website, I work for a website, and we do pay attention to fact checking. We will not publish anything unless it is uh, verified or substantiated or given the person who's being written about, that person given a chance to respond for at least 48 hours. Well, I think that's laudable and admirable and a very good policy. 
But with great respect to your website, it's, it's not as enormous and all-encompassing as, let's say, something as complicated as CNN or the New York Times or The Guardian and so forth. Now, talking about CNN, that uh, Donald Trump complained about during the press conference, that they'd put out a story that was unsubstantiated about him in Russia, uh, and then he refused to take a question from CNN. Uh, do you think now that was tr uh, this intelligence agency's post-truth? Were they lies? Were they, uh, I mean, who's to know? But uh, the way he reacted, it was like, I can lie about anything that I want, you can't. Well, that's a very, a very good, very cynical view of the situation. Yes, I, I dare say what the Russians purportedly got on Donald Trump was all part of the compromising, you know, what they call compromats in Russian, which they've been doing for years. So uh, it's all part of a pattern and it may or may not be true. But once the, the stink of corruption or sexual misbehavior attaches itself to a person, you tend to think that you know, where there's smoke, there's fire or where there's perfume, there's a, some sort of ugly situation going on in the background. But for Donald Trump to have turned on CNN in the way they did. I mean, if you remember, in this specific case, it was all put out by BuzzFeed. The 32 pages of the memo were printed. I read them. I thought, this is salacious. It's unconfirmed. The stink of corruption adheres to Donald Trump as a consequence. Uh, and we are, as a public, tend to believe more as anything bad that's said about Donald Trump these days, because there is a, 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 a tidal wave of opinion against him, at least in New York and the West Coast. Uh, but for him to turn on CNN was very ill-advised, I think. And, and the way that his press secretary then after the inauguration lectured the press on printing what he, the press secretary, said was a string of lies, it's, it's very bad news for the press. I mean, the press has a near constitutional duty to follow the twists and turns of the head of state, the most powerful man in the world, and to be argued with and to be hectored and to have your questions go unanswered and to you ultimately perhaps thrown out of the White House. That is not good for democracy. And so it all goes back in a way, yes, to the appalling, in my view, character of Donald Trump, but also to the dangers of this post-truth world where no one believes anything. And so the kind of um, reactions, while deplorable, of people like Trump are, to a degree, understandable. So we're living in a world where uh, Putin puts away journalists. Um, Narendra Modi decides that he's never going to give a press conference. Uh, and he, in the first week of his election, he said that the press is no longer going to set the agenda. He is, and he has. Um, it's very difficult to, to get to the bottom of things if you have no access, no secretaries talking to you, no um, ministers talking to you. They just, it's a, a radio silence. And then you have uh, Donald Trump, who also threatens journalists that if either toe my line or you won't be allowed in the next press conference. So I would say that we're in very bad shape as far as post-truth is concerned because it's, a, it's an impossible battle unless we have access and uh, are allowed to investigate what, what is really the truth. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, I come from a generation where we relied on um, either formal access to the leadership of a country or else one had a network of informants, of contacts, as we used to call them. One's contact book was the most important document you had, apart from your, your, your passport. Because you would cultivate 
friends within the administration who would time to time slip you pieces of information and you would do a lot of research and, and so on and so forth and you'd get your story and thereby was democracy enhanced in my view. Now it's really the internet and the occasional leaker, the occasional Julian Assange, the uh, Lieutenant Manning, um, the Edward Snowden, people like that. You sort of wait, the people who uh, leaked the Panama Papers from the law firm there, you wait in hope of something like that happening and then you go to town on it. But it's a whole different world now. The old days, it was a journalist. I wasn't particularly an investigative journalist, but I worked on newspapers that had teams of people that were almost detectives. Nowadays, those kind of things are almost uh, uh, have disappeared because governments now, particularly governments, as you mentioned, Narendra Modi's government here, the, one suspects the Trump administration and the Obama administration tightened the ship such that there were very few leaks. So now you'll just hope that such leaks as there are coming from perhaps totally unexpected quarters will produce a deluge of extraordinary information as both WikiLeaks and the Snowden Papers and the Panama Papers have done. But it's a different kind of journalism. There are very few true investigative journalists left and very few sources for them to cultivate. So the post-truth world is very bad for democracy. Thank you very much, Simon. Thank you very much. All the News Laundry podcasts are available on Stitcher, iTunes and any other podcast platform. Please subscribe to News Laundry. Help us keep news independent. To catch all our podcasts on news, pop culture, current affairs and sport, visit newslaundry.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And subscribe to our YouTube channel.